Hello, my name is Viva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Kais Cameron for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It's March 14th, and it's being reported in Ridgewood, Queens. Hello. Hi. Um, well, you were just telling me a little about how you're interested in oral history work. I thought maybe you could speak a little more towards that. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I'm an Iranian-American Persian Jew, and oral history is the majority of the history that I have about my community. And as elders pass on, those histories pass with them often. So recording them is a big part of our community's effort to like preserve our history. And there are big projects around that in the Iranian Jewish community. Um, and I've attempted to like do some of that with my own family. Uh, mm. yeah. Can you talk a little about those projects with your family? Um, I try and mostly leave a recorder on when we're having conversations. Uh, and I have these like recordings of my grandparents discussing family history with someone like my father or my mom. Um, so they're not they're not like attempts to drive the conversation towards it, but when it comes up to like make sure it's preserved. Um, yeah. uh, and I think growing up in LA as a minority, I got involved in this UCLA oral history project because we're a big part of that Los Angeles community and um, there was an effort to record like immigrant experiences in Los Angeles that I was a part of. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us more about your family history? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm uh, like technically first generation. Some people will say second generation. Uh, and my family moved here after the Iranian Revolution in 1979 from Tehran, but originally were from Hamadan, Iran, which is uh, also where in Jewish history, uh, like Queen Esther is from. Uh, so that history has always been important to me growing up in Los Angeles in a Jewish community that was predominantly Ashkenazi and sometimes like this surprise that there are Iranian Jews, but we are very much right there in Jewish history uh, as like Persian Jews. Um, being from Hamadan is like a big part of who I am. Uh, How did you celebrate Purim? Oh, I didn't celebrate Purim this year. It was terrible. Um, usually we celebrate Purim by making uh, the Purim usually hits at the same similar time as Nowruz, the Iranian or the Persian New Year, and there's a cookie that we make for Nowruz that we use like the same dough to make commentations. Um, so usually I'll celebrate by making those, uh, and um, yeah, this year I didn't do anything. I was flying from Los Angeles and just 
let the holiday pass. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you grew up in LA? I grew up in LA. Uh, I grew up in a really insular Iranian Jewish community. Um, I went to Jewish day school and uh, what can I say about that? There's so much to say. <laughs> yeah, anything. Uh, being being part of the Iranian community of Los Angeles, uh, I think we're like a very particular kind of immigrant community where we've like all moved and stayed in the same areas and replicated life from before in Los Angeles so uh, I grew up most of my friends were Iranian kids and um, I don't know there's so much to say it's like struggling a little but um, it's okay yeah. um... When you say that like life was replicated, can you talk about some details of that? Like what, what kinds of like community life? Yeah. Um, I went to school with cousins and family friends, and uh, up until we were actually like prohibited from speaking Farsi. We spoke a lot of Farsi at school. Um, who prohibited you? The school. Um, it was... So basically after the Iranian Revolution, the Iranian Jewish community left very quickly. Uh, there was... Like if you think of the context of that community, uh, World War II didn't just have like a effect as like people heard about what happened to Jews, but the... Shah of Iran at the time was like a Nazi sympathizer and there were German troops in Hamadan where my family was um, and that influenced the anti-semitism that already existed in Iran to take on like new shades and um, when they moved to the states uh, it was like every everyone all together, uh, and Los Angeles and Great Neck are two areas where we concentrated. Um, in Los Angeles, it was there was already a very big active Jewish community, and most uh, temples and schools didn't actually want to admit Iranian kids. And Stephen S. Wise was one of the ones that did. Um, and it was, I think, like culturally, difficult to, uh, what's the word? I don't know, not even assimilate, but just like exist uh, in this. Jewish community as Iranians um, so maybe that that relates to why we stuck to ourselves but also just as people I think like we like we like our own community um, and 
in the school, like in an Iranian, in a, in Sipina Spice Temple, you don't have, like the context is all Jewish kids. So the population is reflective of Jewish communities. And there were Ashkenazi kids, there were Iranian kids, and there were like kind of in between uh, people from Eastern Europe or uh, South America. Um, and they didn't really fall into Ashkenazi camps necessarily. So they would be like on the border of racial, like the racial divide. And there was a very strong racial divide. Um, like to the point where when kids would play basketball, it'd be like Iranian versus white people. And we like named whiteness and spoke about whiteness a lot uh, to like the discomfort of our parents because they didn't like us naming white as something other than them. Um, but it was a very discriminatory and difficult context to, uh, to grow up in. Uh, like teachers thinking you're bad and like seating you in the back of the class and uh, a lot of stereotypes about what it what Iranian kids do and don't want um, and it like would come to a head sometimes like in the sixth grade when they uh, banned us from speaking Farsi because our teachers didn't understand and um, yeah, having like meetings with the principal on like diversity yeah. <laughs> as like a 12 year old, um, I think like otherness is like very, a big part of who I am, like being othered as a young person. Um, it's like interesting to think in the context you're othered, but you're also in a community. So you have like a strong sense of identity. Um, or I had a strong sense of identity, uh, and a lot of, like, now being in a city like New York, where, like, we discussed, like, you know, where you come from and how, like, what being a person of color means, I think, like, that school context really, uh, affected how I felt about whiteness and the U.S., um, and uh, yeah, it made like a lot of other things, other community struggles here easy to understand. Um, yeah. mm. um, and so, okay, that was in elementary school. And um, as a child, what else did you connect to? Um, I was really into reading, uh, and that was also something that, like, I wasn't supposed to be interested in as an Iranian kid. Like, we didn't like to study, or I'm using finger quotes as I say that, um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I gravitated to a lot of African-American literature, um, And learned, learned about, I don't know, U.S. history in a way that's like, I think, uh, it wasn't my history. It was like something I had to learn and understand as like someone coming into a place. And 
Um, I don't know. Okay, yeah. Um, so you were in a family, and who, you know, who did you connect to in your family? Mm. Who should I connect to in my family? Uh, I have uh, an older brother and a younger sister. Um, two parents who were married until I was 21 and are now divorced. Um, they're also cousins, which is like a very normal thing in our community uh, because of like the context of Iranian life in Iran. A lot of people like intermarried, um, and um, who should I connect to? My my parents, my family itself, I think, are known a little bit to be weirdos for our community, um, uh, eccentric, <laughs> maybe, and uh, so in that sense, I was really lucky. Uh, both my parents went to college uh, and my my mom going to college I think was a big thing um, n- not like for my family in particular but in my friend group it wasn't like consistent uh, and there are a lot of artists I guess in my family uh, and people who married non non Iranians non-jews which is also like very taboo um, I don't know if there was someone in particular in my family that I connected with, uh, but in different periods, different different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you opened with how, you know, storytelling composited a big part of like knowing your family history. Um, were there ways in which you learned early on certain lessons? Um, passed down were there I don't know were there just specific stories that you still like think about that were part of your upbringing um yeah so many uh my my grand my grandfather uh was a big storyteller and um he had a uh, he had a very difficult childhood in Hamadan where, uh, like, again, like, it's in a context where, like, German troops were around and, um... Can I just, um, because I, yeah. I didn't know about the history of Germans in yeah. Iran. Um, what were they doing? Were they... How were they in in in, in um, relationship to the efforts of the war at that time? So, the first Shah. Um, the reason that actually his son kind of took over was after World War Two, uh, because the Nazis lost and he was a Nazi sympathizer. He could no longer really be head of state, so his son was like put in his place. Um, Hamadan is in the mountain regions of Iran. Uh, closer to the borders of Europe. So it was like an access point. Okay. Um, and uh, 
I don't know exactly how, but I know that at during that time, uh, there was a lot of active like uh, like pogrom style uh, harassment of Jewish communities, and that changed under the the sun. Um, which is one of the reasons now Jews uh, who left Iran are very much uh, sympathizers with uh, the regime that was uh, toppled. And they saw a lot of like racial uplift during the time of the second Shah, uh, where opportunities were specifically given to Jews, uh, maybe in an effort to like repair history um, and mm, yeah mm, yeah <laughs> meandered away from the original question but no thank you I um, yeah so yeah I remember my grandpa telling me stories about like going to get water from the well and on his way back kids would throw dirt in his bucket and he'd have to like go start over again and like, just being consistently, like, harassed by children, and, like, my grandma, uh, she'll tell the story of, like, the only time she won anything, uh, on her way home, she was, like, jumped by a bunch of kids, and her, like, prize was stolen, and... And it's because they were Jewish? Yeah, it's because they were Jewish, um, and still, like, poor, uh, there the modernization of the country and a lot of people leaving smaller towns for like the big city of Tehran uh, helped a lot of people move up. Uh, but also, like my grandfather left Hamadan when he was 16 and uh, went to Palestine and joined the IDF and was there for three years um, where he got like most of his education and then like that affected his relationship to Zionism um yeah he was like a big Zionist um yes did that carry through your, the rest of your family or yeah it's you know like I myself am an anti-Zionist but like thinking about why people are the way they are I think a lot of people in discussing uh, like why Jews don't need a state, they fail often to remember that Iranian Jews left in 79, far after the founding of a state, when uh, like a threat against the population happened and was very clear. Like it wasn't like an imagined violence. Uh, immediately after the revolution, the head rabbi was killed. Many people's families were attacked and. Um, Iranian Jews kind of, I think, proved a point that Zionism really wanted to prove, which is like, we are, we are here to take you in when this happens, unfortunately. And it is, yeah, you can't use the same, uh, I guess, talking points 
like as an anti-Zionist, it's like there's a different kind of story you have to look at um, to access like Iranian Jewish reality. And is there a way to talk about that with your family? Yeah, I do. And with my grandpa too, you know, he, um, before he passed, uh, one of my uncles, uh, who became like a Trump supporter from being like a very leftist, it was a very odd thing that happened. Um, he's never been really Jewish or a Zionist, but he was trying to get my grandpa not to like me. And he was like, oh, you know, he, he's a anti-Zionist. And my grandpa was just like, what does that even mean to you? You're not even a Jew. Like, he's very much a Jew. And if he has opinions, I'm sure they're formed from things he's learned. Um, I think with my grandpa, the important thing was like loyalty. So how I've moved with my anti-Zionism has been like, am I always actually standing for my people, even if I disagree with them? And that made our conversations a lot easier because Yeah. Um, and could you just explain when you say standing with your people what that means? Um, when I, I, when I was young, I was very much a Zionist, um, and I think it fit in for me with my, my leftist politics very easily. Um, and in college, it was the first time I really had to face that among other people that like this, these values I hold are actually contradictory to how I see the world. And I was like an organizer and in like communities that were doing uh, like radical work in Northern California and my Zionism became an issue that I had to face, but I couldn't really face it there because there were there was only other one other Jewish person in my like organizing community and he was this older white man who wasn't a practicing Jew and didn't like was very dismissive of his Jewish identity um, and I actually ended up moving to Palestine for like six years because um, it was really important for me to learn how to be an anti-Zionist from people of color who like had similar experiences Can in the Can you talk about where um, you were living and um, at what time in your life, like what year that was or how old you were? Yeah, uh, it actually it relates to my being trans a lot too. So like I'm transitioning and in college and my politics are changing all around the same time, like 20 years old. And uh, I graduated and moved to the Bay. And could you say what college you went to? I Sorry. went to UC Davis. No, no problem. Yeah, yeah, I went to UC Davis. Um, and I, and after Davis, I moved to Oakland. And this, uh, this thing of my being a Zionist, like, followed me uh, and made it really hard to connect in community. Um, and so I packed up and I flew to Tel Aviv for like six months, um, when I was 23, uh, or 22, 22, um, 
and I just went like to kind of see it from a different perspective. I'd visited Israel a lot of times in my life. I have family there. And um, this time I went on my own and I stayed in Tel Aviv. And I started hanging out at a cafe that my cousin uh, introduced me to, um, Cafe Albi. And it was owned by a trans Iraqi man and a butch Yemeni woman. Uh, and they were really instrumental to my ability to transition and to like see people masculine of center uh, like, I don't know experience their genders uh, helped me uh, see a future for myself yeah um, I'm one of two i think that i know of so i'm sure there's another but i've really tried hard to look uh iranian trans jewish men uh he, the other one i know lives lives in tel aviv uh and yeah growing up in la there was just there was there was no queerness for me to see there's no body like mine um and When you were growing up, did your family ever mention queerness or gayness or? Um, you know, I remember, I think because of television, there was a point in like the late 90s where uh, like gay people adopting was a hot topic in public discourse and in like, you know, sitcoms we were watching. And I remember my brother and I uh, arguing with my parents at a very young age about why gay men should be allowed to adopt and my parents being like no and they're also very they're very liberal but like they were like no that that's like not natural and my brother and I having to like say but like there are all these children that you know need to so like that was one of the few conversations around homosexuality I remember uh it was just not something that it that came up um and I remember my grandma once saying I had a cousin who was a lesbian and I was like, what? Who? You know, but she like brushed past it so quickly. Right. Um, do you remember at that age? Because now a lot of gay people are always like, what's your root? Like, do you have any that you can reflect on? Um, my root. I mean, so there's so many points. There was, this is, this is really an odd, an odd route, but, uh, in the original, the real L word, so not like the L word, but the spinoff that was like a reality show, there was this, um, black trans man who was kind of attached to the group, even though he didn't actually know any of them. And his story was, he was like a femme cheerleader and then he realized he was trans and, uh, I was very femme my, my whole life from like eight till 20 and I think one of the hardest things for me was to imagine going from that to like to transition and seeing someone else actually do that was the I think the thing that allowed me uh, to make that change um, I was a tomboy as, as a young person as like a prepubescent person um, 
and I think like all my closest friends were boys and at the same time as like race became real for me gender became real for me I think in in the third grade uh where it just felt like too much otherness um and I think I put that all away (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so zoom ahead you're in this cafe in Tel Aviv (laughs) this cafe in Tel Aviv and I just loved watching uh the two owners like like I spent so much time just looking at them um and taking so much pleasure in their gender expression and like seeing the joy of it um and they the cafe was also so it was like a leftist space and a queer space and a Mizrahi space and um sometimes those things conflicted with each other those populations um and we could really talk about Zionism with each other honestly, like what it meant and like people's differing opinions and what it meant to be. This is also at the time in in Israel where Mizrahi identity politics were like starting to become a hot topic and um, I got to learn a lot of really important details about like understanding uh, why Mizrahi Jews in Israel were Zionists, like how the state was treating them and how that affected their politics and um, and then also talk openly in a way that like often in college from professors I love to like friends there seemed to be this need to like dismiss the reality of Jewish persecution uh, to be an anti-Zionist, like that, that like you needed to minimize people's histories, which felt really shitty. Like sitting in a classroom and like having a professor I really admire talking about an Iraqi and a pro- pogrom in Iraq and being like, "Oh, but it wasn't such a big deal." And it's like, okay, <laughs> it wasn't a big deal to you, but it it was a big deal. And like that person who you're talking about might have become an anti-Zionist, but you can't leave behind that whole community that was affected by that reality yeah. and context context. context yeah. yeah and like even now so many of the things that i learned then uh like my partner was asking me why like certain mizrahi israeli singers were were ignoring uh Zionism and like uh, reaffirming their like Arabic let's say roots um, and why they're not speaking publicly if they are privately like uh, anti-Zionist and um, understanding that like within Israel itself there is this construction that makes it a lot easier for an Ashkenazi person to be to be an anti-Zionist in public life and it's very different for a Mizrahi person and what that looks like. Uh, yeah, no context. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so you said that at the same time of your like political awakening, you were also transitioning. What did that look like, and how did that take shape? If it was taking shape in Israel, yeah. yeah. Um, growing up in LA meant everybody knew you. You'd go anywhere, and someone would tell your mother. You know, it was like very hard to be invisible, and uh, everyone had to be really careful of anything they were doing that would was taboo so going abroad even going away to college which most like very few kids were allowed to do um gave me space to experiment and going to tel aviv gave me the the most space you know it was like in a different time zone uh my family obligations were minimized and there was this like you're off doing something important, you know, like a young Jew going going to Israel. So I was kind of just left alone. Like you can you can go there uh, mm-hmm. and do whatever you want. Um, and uh, I spent six months. Uh, I started working in that cafe as a cook, and um, I found like actual community. And, um, I returned to the States because I had to complete a community service, um, something I'd done in college, got settled in court, and I had to come do, like, 500 hours of community service in Davis to get my record clean. And I came back, uh, um... And, I don't know, fell in love and stayed in Davis for a while. Um, And uh, I I think falling in love also, like, affected my trans history. I think uh, I'd never been in love before I was 24 years old, which felt like very old to be in love for the first time. Uh, And when... I was first heartbroken, I realized, uh, I just, like, I became very, I don't know, emo and sad and, uh, suicidal, and I realized that I really needed to start transitioning, uh, like, to stay alive, um, that, like, nothing was gonna really make me happy until I did, um, and I started, I started taking hormones, but I also started, like, long before I started taking hormones, I started doing things to make it look like I had already started taking hormones, so that I would be asked by family members, like, questions, and I could say no without lying. I was, like, very, really didn't like to lie, uh, and so I got, you know, I got people to ask me it these questions and just be like no and then like three months later started tea and nobody asked me for a long time again because they had already checked in um and yeah I don't know and then I went back I went back to Palestine um but that this time got a visa and like stayed there for a while and back to Tel Aviv or back to Tel Aviv yeah and were you doing the same thing or 
yeah, I went, um, I went back to Albi and I used to work in the kitchen and, uh, I wanted the same job and they're like, well, we don't have the kitchen right now, but you can work in the bar. And, um, yeah, on my, my first day back, they were like, so your pronouns different. <laughs> has anything changed? Um, and that space, uh, I like transitions kind of there in, in that cafe, like in front of people there and um, with these like two mentors, I guess, uh, who ha like on the one hand, I had a, like a butch mentor and I got to see like what that life would look like and a trans mentor and what his life looked like. And also like seeing, uh, seeing the way that my butch mentor looked at me as I was transitioning and understanding like that I had access to something that they also couldn't have imagined for themselves. Um, I had more intergenerational relationships there than I, than I ever had in the States in my queer life. Um, I found in New York, it's like very difficult to find intergenerational <laughs> uh, friendships and in that space, there was such a spectrum of queer people in like seventies. Uh, Why do you think it is that there was such a range there? It's a very small country, and Tel Aviv is like the New York of the country, but it's so much smaller, you know. So it's like one cafe is actually like known uh, as like a hub for people. So people are coming there, and. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, I think I think there's something about how 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 much smaller the community is itself that you people stick to each other more. Mm. And um, I guess well, uh, how did you then get to New York? Um, I I worked at the Albi and then. Uh, I worked for a little bit at um, Who Profits, which is like a um, a BDS-centered uh, organization that gets like information on uh, what businesses are like functioning in the occupied territories. Um, and then from there, I started working at the Anulu, which was a um, a small club that was owned by a group of Israelis and Palestinians and was like also a weirdo spot um, and they eventually asked me if I wanted to like become part of the business and I realized if I stayed I would I would be I would be living there the rest of my life and I was 28 and I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted so I thought uh, this was like the time to go back you know I wasn't sure if I actually wanted to like eventually I would have to immigrate and I didn't necessarily want to do that like there was only so long you can have a visa and um like being a citizen of a country is such a big thing um I kind of like only being the citizen of the U.S. like I feel attached to being like in a way your property and I didn't want to be Israel's property um and there's not dual citizenship? No, there is, there is, but yeah. you're still Israeli. 
okay. you'd still be Israeli um, and subject to like whatever Israel like demands of its people and um, I I work in nightlife and I wanted to open a club and New York has the highest um, rate of trans people moving like in the country it's a center for us and yeah I don't know so where did you land when you moved Brooklyn my sister uh, went to Barnard and then moved to Crown Heights after college and we weren't sure if we wanted to live together even though that was like a childhood dream of ours and when I was looking for a job I, I didn't move before I had a job so I came and like dropped my resume off at places and I was staying with her and that same weekend her roommate was like oh actually I, I'm leaving I got a job in the bay and I ended up moving in to my sister <laughs> it was like very mm. faded almost yeah and my sister and I are really close so we lived together for two years um, in Crown Heights yeah. and how was that shift I realize I'm like I'm still shifting um, not being in the States in your 20s had like a profound effect on how I learned to socialize and be a person and these last few years I feel like I'm learning how to be an, an American again um, and uh, can you talk more about the differences of not being in your 20s here versus somewhere else no, I was I spoke I spoke Hebrew but not very well and I was in a context where English was like a language people spoke uh, as maybe a bridge so that you know we're, we were around a lot of Palestinians and to like not speak Hebrew like English was the other option and but at the same time, I was around a lot of people who were speaking Arabic or speaking Hebrew, and I was like kind of a silent listener uh, in those contexts. And I think, uh, I don't know, I moved back and I felt a little foreign here. Uh, also, like the English we speak in the U.S. is is one one version of English, and then like when you're in a different place, you're often like. I, at least I found I was speaking in Hebrew and English, you know, like changing the rhythm of a language and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Um, okay, so you moved in with your sister. I'm just trying to yeah, yeah. keep up. Um, and so how did you become employed? What was your job? Uh, I worked at a queer venue. It wasn't queer at the time. Come on, everybody. Um... And, uh, it's, I was nervous moving back to the States. Uh, I was managing a club in Palestine and I was nervous about coming here and having to start over and also to start over one of the facets of being trans is you're often infantilized, I think, because you look young. So at 28, uh, I looked maybe like an 18 year old and that means that people treat you a certain way and it took it was really hard um, to prove what I knew or like who I was in my age um, 
And were these um, queer people treating you that way, or it just like generally was the ethic that people felt? I think like white gay men, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, like now, it took like three years for me to get back to where I was when I left Palestine. Um, in terms of like being seen. Mm. And what drew you to nightlife? Um, what drew me to nightlife? I uh, I've always liked to throw parties uh, since I was a kid, and um, I think gender-wise that was also odd. You know, like Persian boys threw parties and did a lot of things, but Persian girls did not do those things. And I was often breaking, I think, that boundary without realizing it, like, and maybe not leaning into things as much as I wanted to. And after I transitioned, I was able to like, reaccess those, those parts of myself. Um, nightlife also gave me a lot of space to like experiment with my gender and um, I mean there's a lot of things about it it's also I think it it pulls a lot of trans people because it gives you a place to kind of perform your gender uh, in different ways to people and and try on like new things um, to, what were you to trying? an audience I don't know everything I mean it seems so simple but like You know, you're, you be you, I was in many ways very comfortable with being a woman. Like, I really was attached to that identity. And uh, when I transitioned, um, kind of had to like re rethink all my mannerisms like where they came from and like how I speak or look at people and uh, how people perceive me now uh, yeah where do you where did they come from yeah maybe like watching watching those queers in the cafe in Tel Aviv, That's seeing true. that and like. Um, and I'm wondering, so your social landscape at the time, and it seems like, yeah, working in a club is like a really easy way to have access to like a social landscape. Were there other places that you partied or met people at or did it feel very centered in your, your job? Yeah, I'm a bit of a workaholic. So I think it usually centered in my job because I was usually at work. So <laughs> it was just, uh, and my work was social. So often uh, I am surprisingly introverted and need a lot of alone time. So outside of work, I'm usually doing very quiet things. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And sorry, to, um, are you still working at? I'm not working at Come On Everybody. I'm actually working on opening. So I moved to New York with the intention of opening a trans-owned and operated uh, collective nightlife venue. And 
hopefully that will come to be this year. Wow. <laughs> so I'm working on that. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, when I was at the Anulu, I was given hiring uh, power for the first time in my life. That was the club in, in Jaffa in Palestine. And I obviously hired, I hired a bunch of trans people. And that process of like trans people are really integral to nightlife, but are often performers and not given access to like certain uh, in Tel Aviv, it was really hard for people to transition into being a bartender from being like a nightlife performer. And for trans women, especially, uh, you're like pigeonholed and, uh, being able to like tell people they could wear whatever they want to work and uh, like making my boss comfortable like no like because that club was a little bit rough like I often got harassed um, not for being gay just by men and they were like we'd be concerned I'd like hire a trans girl and they'd be like oh like what if somebody does something and then the what will like we you know what will happen and actually like those women were very capable of controlling the environment and not getting, like, shutting down uh, any disturbances. And um, I also saw a lot of friends being kind of like eaten up by nightlife, like working in it and burning out and um, kind of aging out and being really afraid of aging out of nightlife. Um, and New York felt like a place that I could give, or I could, uh, the idea behind this club is that people become owners as they work there, and when they're ready to transition out of nightlife, can sell those shares and like have an opportunity to set up the next part of their life. and. Um, yeah. Wow. So have you, like, located a neighborhood, or...? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's one place that I'm really hoping we'll get. It's in Prospect Heights, um, but, uh, Bedside Crown Heights border is kind of the area I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, and... How does um, leadership work in, in that form, if it's co a collective, collective. Owned? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's something that we, we've been thinking about a lot. Uh, like, hierarchy is very important in the service industry. It's, like, a big thing. And some, some of it is useful because, like, chains of command and responsibility matter. But how do you, like, think outside of that and remove hierarchy? And I think... Um, these are questions like we're, we're trying to figure out. Uh, I think when you have a stake in a business, you care about it in a different way. And not everyone who works there will be an owner or have to be an owner, um, but people have that opportunity. Um, what was your question? It was how well? Yeah, just like the hierarchy question of if there's yeah. a leadership, if it is collective. Um, in in Davis, I I lived in commun communal living for a while, so cooperative 
voting and uh, boards were like a big part of my college life um, and that model is something I've carried with me and like wanted to see in other other parts of my life so I don't know yeah amazing um, I was wondering I mean I guess since you haven't been here continuously through how many years have you been in New York City now? It's four years now. Four years, yeah. okay. I'm about to hit four years, April. Amazing. Be four years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes when we are younger and then we go through, like, a different, like, an intense historical time, like, what it looks like for trans communities to, like, span that time. And if you've sensed any sort of, like, change in your own personal community in ways that people are in relation to each other or ways that they're exercising their sort of, like, politics or um it's like it's hard to answer that right now in this context of there's just so much happening to trans people and uh and that violence I think is taking center stage in in our uh ways of relating to each other but I hope it's really hard when you're in part of a community that's really struggling to build things. Uh, people have needs that are not being met and um, material needs that are not being met and I think that makes collaboration also like hard at times um, and because we face so much violence in the world sometimes we bring that home to each other uh, and I think right now in New York, what I'm seeing is people trying really hard to uh, stop doing that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I would love to see more of that. <laughs> more sort of like transformative justice enacted interpersonally and in community. Yeah, it's very hard. And I think because we don't have access to justice in context outside of our trans community, like with our bosses or parents or when we have access to each other and we make mistakes, it's a lot easier. There's like a lot of access in attacking each other um, because we don't get to, we don't get to like fight with the club owner or with uh, whoever it is that's causing us a lot of harm. But when we cause each other harm, that's the place where we're like, okay, I can I can tell you everything or I can and yeah what is and you don't have to I'm just thinking about like what what would repair look like for you in, in community This kind of 
my answer circles back to like intergenerational friendships. So I think one of the reasons we don't have that actually in New York is uh, we we excommunicate elders often for mistakes that they've made. Um, and in my community in Tel Aviv, that was like, there was a lot less of that. You know, like people aren't aren't perfect and the standard uh for who you interact with is different and i've seen a lot of people uh like accountability is really challenging i think when there's no uh yeah like restorative justice when there's no space for uh repair work and something I've seen a lot of is actually queer people being pushed out of community but then like cis straight people existing in those communities and not being held accountable um and I don't know I hope like even with the club I hope we'll have some kind of uh interpersonal conflict resolution space where people can uh, be heard and um, yeah there's like room for restorative justice mm. and what was what is your orientation towards like door policies since a lot of queer parties often have some sort of exciting like scale based on an identity complex I'm just wondering for your club like if you yeah if you have an idea of what you would do um we will have membership uh and it's not going to be queer exclusive so you know like let's say this venue is going to be hopefully in prospect heights um i would like it to service the community around it and not just like queer people in community um i don't know door policy uh, i think there will be a um I don't know if I can talk about this right now. That's fine. Right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. I'm just because um, sometimes it, there's a lot of DJs or people that are in nightlife that um, have experienced the policy of like cis white men paying seventy five dollars and like a scale for everyone else paying ten and everyone else I just mean like under the umbrella of queer. Yeah. And having like that's been sort of a divisive topic for some people in relationship to what it means to like host or. Yeah invite in people for a a queer party um but it's also absolutely fine if that's like something obviously you'll get to yeah i think it's also as a like as something that will be very openly where trans owned and operated we're gonna have to be really careful uh because you know let's say in like the context of like uh like men's rights or uh, often like we will have to yeah maybe we totally, yeah. totally. it's a work in progress yeah <laughs> so and just more broadly and thinking about um, being trans in New York have yeah. you had um, experiences with uh, safety issues yeah um 
that's just a broad, broad safety. So many things fall under that umbrella. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have an answer to that question either. Okay, no problem. Um, we can tor- turn towards something more positive. What are some things that you love to do in New York? Things I love to do in New York. Um, I love Prospect Park and Reese uh, Beach. Um, I really, really enjoy uh, community-centered events um, from like parties to talks. Um, there are a lot of queer Swana people in New York, so I get to go to a lot of art. art. Um, sorry, also in yeah. in asking about um, these parties, could you n- name them? We'd love to know, like, just in a historical sense, like, where people partied and what they were, so that yeah. we can kind of keep track of. Um, so right now I like to go to Hazza Party. Um, it was an event when I first moved to New York that I would go to that I don't anymore, Yellow Party. Um, what else? Uh, there's also just, like, uh, I don't know, I'm in so many Instagram group chats that are like identity-centered and then people do events like, through those. Um, and other other meaningful events right now. Yeah, I go to Laylit too. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything coming up that you're excited about? I'm going to Laylit on Friday, actually. Um, but no. Mm. And how do you relate to your um, religious background now? Uh, how do I relate to my religious background? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. My partner says I'm religious, which is funny to think about. Because as a Jew, when we say religious, it's like, uh, you know, it's just the it means something particular. But I think to the average American, I'm religious because I uh, I practice. Uh, what is maybe minimal in terms of like Jewish life, but uh, you know, high holidays and um, I have like a lot of queer Jewish friends and we try and do alternative uh, like Tu Bishvat and um, and I believe in God though I don't think that that uh, I was Jewish and I didn't believe in God and I'm Jewish now and I believe in God. It's very easy to be Jewish and not believe in God. <laughs> um, Why do you think that is? Uh, because you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. It's not uh, It's not a ne- ne- necessary facet. Uh, it's like there are a lot of different, uh, different ways in which Judaism expresses that. Like... Uh, doing mitzvot itself is like an act of 
being Jewish in the world, and I think it's thought you can do you can do these things, and faith will come. You don't need faith to do these things, um, and. When I was in high school, we read a book about uh, Alicia Benabuya, who's uh, a rabbinical, um, like on the time of the Talmud, this uh, very important um, Jewish thinker who uh, he ends up getting, his name gets stricken, but his teachings remain because he goes through this like process of no longer believing in God and... Um, betraying the Jewish people, uh, but he's still, he's still there, and, um, yeah, it's just, like, discussion about what that means to, like, have an important teacher or be someone who, like, wasn't even Jewish in the end of his days, <laughs> um, yeah. What else are you learning from now, or... I'm so focused on club, the club lately that I, I'm, I don't know if I'm learning about very boring things like city codes, <laughs> um, but uh, friends. I had the opportunity to go see an art exhibit of a friend in Norway who was like a Sudanese uh, refugee, and I was in a group of like five uh, queer all of them but me were refugees and I'm like the child of refugees and just like talking with each other and like learning from each other and uh, yeah. Mm. Um, sorry to, I'm, I'm so curious about the club. Are there <laughs> other ones, other clubs that you see as a model that you want to emulate in some ways? Um, No, but there are other cooperative club venues that are going to open uh, in this like year and the next, and I've connected with some of those people, um, and I'm excited, uh, excited that I'll be doing that alongside other people. Wow. Why do you think that is that um, there are multiple ones happening at the same time, or a similar time? Hmm. Nightlife took such a hit during COVID um, that I think it made a lot of people reassess their relationship to it and the sustainability of it and also how central it is to our existence. Um, it's an industry that like make, it does make a lot of profit, but then also like, who's making the profit and it's not actually going to like artists and workers. Um, and we're seeing that become more part of the public discourse too with like even in like the major US news talking about like Live Nation and what it means for like uh, like Ticketmaster to be like hold so much power like we're asking these questions as a country of like what what is our relationship to the arts and um, and big artists themselves speaking out about how like we can't make a living touring like how could like independent artists doing that survive I think yeah we, we're gonna we have to shift our relationship to, to the arts and 
and nightlife is part of that. Totally. Um, In wrapping up, I have a few more questions I hope you'd be down for. Um, What have been some important forms of support for you over the years? One of my closest friends um, who... uh, He's the first, uh, was butch, now trans masculine person I was friends with, and he gave me my first ace bandage, and, like, uh, he's, he's been really important, uh, What to, do you want to name him, where do you name him? Yeah, Misha, Misha Kaufman, uh, and my sister, um, and then maybe like, literature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any and, books in particular, or are you? You know, I didn't even know it was cliche until a few years ago. But Giovanni's Room, reading that in college, actually changed my life. Um, I read it at the same time as I was starting to have a more radical politics and. Yeah, Baldwin is and was really important to me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add to your your interview today? Oh, I feel like we jumped around so much. I'm sorry. No, it's it's totally Um, as it goes, as you think of things. Um... Yeah, I guess it, I didn't really talk about, like, we talked about L.A. a little bit, but um, there's really beautiful things happening in my community now, um, movements to, like, uh, when I came out, I was one of, like, very few people out in my community, um, and my mom and some of her friends started like a group for parents and that's kind of taken on so many different forms now and there's like a really cool support network for the parents of LGBTQ um, kids in Los Angeles and um, yeah it's what's it called uh what is it called? I don't know. I don't know if it has a name. Uh, it's a it's a, an actual support group that parents go to that's moderated by a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like P flag or no no it's, it's not, not it's okay. not it's like in so I think interestingly because we're an insular community things only work for us that are for us like we don't we don't like we don't do well in other things so even like my dad struggled with addiction. He went to, like, a rehab for Iranian men, and the context of it was, like, very Iranian. Um, and I think also with this, uh, it's it's just parents uh, who love their kids and really struggled not having community if their kid would come out and building alternative communities. Um, and they joked that it was also about getting us to marry each other, <laughs> we're like, uh, yeah, it's, uh, 
very important to be with an, another Iranian Jew, um, like not just Jewish. That doesn't like that's not enough. Um, and yeah, I think the parents wanted to know other people to like matchmake, which is happening now. And there have been some like big gay weddings, which is, but mostly gay men. It's really slow with women. Um, and. Um, how does it make you feel to know your mom started that? Uh, she's 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 a cool lady, um, <laughs> you know. Shout out to your mom. Yeah. Um, when you were saying like, what's the root? I think one of them was my mom worked for a living my whole life, and that was very queer in itself in my community. And what did um, she work as? She had a f- um, clothing manufacturing company. Um, women's clothing for like when she started it it was like to bring more feminine like women used to have to dress really like in a certain way in at work to be taken seriously and in the 90s there was this shift of like you can you don't have to wear boxy suits so she like made clothes for that that kind of a woman working woman wow Uh, and how did she dress She's a very feminine woman, uh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Is there anything else that comes to mind? I know we, um, because we're centered in New York City as a project, we often talk about New York, highlight that, but I'm also so happy to kind of fill in aspects of what helped inform you as a, you know, a whole person. Yeah. Um, No, oh, I think we talk about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any questions? Um, I will off the record, but okay. I am so happy that we got to speak today. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>